standard issue for all women. Just a quick intro. This week we spoke to the brilliant and exceptionally interesting Alison Inman, who is the president of the Chartered Institute of Housing. Now, that might not sound that interesting, but let me assure you she is. We had a really great chat. We talked about the chronic shortage of social housing. We talked about the concept of affordable housing. There's a laugh. We talked about shortage of refuge spaces and and what work could be done to help victims of domestic violence. We talked about rent control, all sorts of things, all of which was really interesting. So you're in for a treat there. Quick point of admin, if you haven't listened to this week's podcast, you should give that a listen. In that, our Sarah and myself spoke to actor Sally Lindsay and comedian Joe Emright, and that was a crap load of fun. Uh, and then on Wednesday, we have another pod scene coming for you. Yosa Rosman will be in to tell us about an exciting time for film in the run-up to the Oscars. And comedian Angela Barnes will be in to talk to us about the new series of Newsjack and the difficulties of cracking jokes in these, well, these insane times. So I'll speak to you again soon. Enjoy. Hi, we're here with Alison Inman, who is the president of the Chartered Institute of Housing. Welcome, Alison. Hello. Probably the best way to start is if you could explain to us what the president of the Chartered Institute of Housing is and does. Okay, what on earth is that all about? So the Institute of Housing is the professional body for housing. We've got about 16,000 members across the UK and across the world. And the president has a, you know, is elected to serve for a year. The Institute's been, we had our centenary two years ago. But we actually grew out of a women's organisation, which was the Association of Women Housing Managers, because um, traditionally housing has been a profession for women, started by Octavia Hill. I have heard of her. Octavia Hill also started National Trust. But lots and lots of incredible women in the 20s and 30s doing stuff that, you know, we hope to emulate today, but they were feisty, they were brilliant. You took over in July... I took over, yeah, it's September. Now you've arrived in this position in a kind of crazy time for yeah. housing. We're talking about housing, which is good. We're never going to do it. We've got a housing crisis, let's be honest. Well, that promise from the Tories to build all the new housing never kind of came to fruition, did yeah. it? So they've, they've agreed to move £2 billion that probably would otherwise have supported home ownership into building social housing. Whether it's at social rents or affordable rents, we think is really important. It used to be the time that you could work hard and live in, let's say, a council house and not be reliant on the benefit system. But with, you know, with insecure employment and wage stagnation, rising rents, that's getting increasingly, increasingly difficult. But we're talking about social housing again. Obviously, post-Grenfell, we're talking about social housing and it's to our collective shame I think that it's taken something like that to move social housing back onto the agenda in the way that it is. It's kind of fallen out of the news quite quickly given Mm. the scale of the the tragedy and surely with what happened at Grenfell there must be other tower blocks and other housing that is in exactly the same sort of state. Everybody is, it sounds like a cop-out and it isn't. Everyone's waiting for um, the result of the public inquiry because we don't know. I don't think we're going to, you know, I'm not an expert in um, building regs or, you know, cladding or anything else like that, but I don't think we're going to get to the end of the inquiry and say this one thing led to this mm. 
this occurrence. I think it's going to be really, really complicated. It's a clusterfuck of stuff that's gone wrong, right? Yeah, and it's... Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And it's born out of... I mean, there are all sorts of bits to it. There's the whole... There's the technical side. But then, if you think about Grenfell and the blocks around it when they were built, the people who lived in them when they were built were council tenants. And... There were systems and processes and, and ways of managing that block. At the time of the fire, there were, yes, there were still council tenants. There were um, people who'd bought, so there were owner-occupiers, exercised the, the right to buy. There were private tenants who were renting from people who'd exercised the right to buy. There were other leaseholders who'd bought from people who had exercised the right to buy. There were people in Airbnb... There were tenants of other of housing associations who'd bought X right to buys on the open market in order to house some of their tenants. Probably there were some people, you know, who who maybe ought not to have been there. We don't know. So actually, trying to manage all of that, who do you complain to when you're not happy? You know, well, who's responsible for what? I think that was one of our questions for you, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people, and it's one of those unintended. You know, Grenfell is not a result of the right to buy. I would never say that. But the complexity of managing that is a result, an unforeseen consequence of right to buy. I just had a lovely walk up from Old Street and you can sort of see the history of social housing as you walk around mm. this area. Some big new builds, aren't there? The sort of swanky... Yeah, and then also some like quite old estates and yeah. And if you go into those estates, those estates are not full of council tenants. No, they're not, no. They're full of a mix of people. They'll be students, mm. they'll be you know, and it just makes it more and more yeah. more and more confusing. Mm. You're also the co founder of the Campaign for Social Housing. I am. Which aims to give a voice to tenants. A voice to people living in the sector and also saying, I mean I'm not an economist, but we, we, you know, we've got this housing crisis. We need to be building 250,000 new homes a year in order to get back to a situation yeah. where we were. We need to get prices more affordable. Houses don't build themselves. You invest in them, and you either invest up front through grant or you pay in the long run through housing benefit and higher rents. Yeah. And our frustration is that that's, the latter is the way that we've gone since since 2010 you've also got a situation so affordable rents we've got the introduction of the word affordable yes yes okay so we've got two different words we've got affordable as you and i might understand it which is something you can afford yeah that's what we used to say in lee Um, (laughs) pretty straightforward really isn't it does what it says on the tin and then there's affordable which you always do if we're on the telly and you could see with those little inverted commas allison's doing rabbit's ears i know i'm brilliant at them too and what that meant is that um people could build social housing at higher rents and then use the extra rent to leverage in private sector finance in order to build more. That's because there was no grant available. The problem with that is that it, well, there were many problems with that in my view, one of which is that you are charging higher rents to poor people in order to build more homes for other poor people. Yeah. yeah, we don't go into the hospital and say, "I'm really sorry, you're lot, you lot, you're a bit poorly." We're going to tax you a bit more because there's a shed load of other poorly people outside, and we need to treat them. We spread that cost amongst the, the general yeah. po- population. It's also, to me, 
I'm buying 25% of a flat at the moment and it's also, to me, really shocking what the government's understanding of affordable housing is. So this is obviously a bit different because I'm not it's I'm not a social housing tenant. Are you buying from a housing association though? I am, yeah. yeah. But you have to have a pretty high income yeah. to be able to do this and the, I think the maximum income the maximum household income for this particular place I think is something like 90 grand. That's a that's a, that's a big old income yeah. for a, like a one bedroom flat. So to me, like it's it's, it's, it's bonkers. Yeah. So it's it's not even really affordable to me, and and the idea that that is you know this is how we help people out now is is crazy. Like if this if this is the best you can come up with, clearly more. It's a bit. I, I think, so I think much more needs to be done. Sorry. No, sorry. I thought of you. A lot of the problem, as I see it, is that we, especially where I live, I live in Cambridge. I mean, it's like the World West in in what you get for rent yep. there. I have a, a spare room. I do rent it out sometimes. I charge what what I want to make out of it, which is actually just enough money for me to make something like to cover the, the expenses of having someone in. It's a lot less that I charge than what most people yep. charge to live. I mean, you could pay anywhere between about six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred pounds to just have one room in Cambridge. Which means it puts more pressure on social housing because it is unaffordable to rent on the on the open market. Is the answer to introduce rent controls within the private sector? Yeah, um, I think certainly rent certainty. I mean, there's work being done around that, so that what's the difference? So that you're not getting a, a, a rent hike every. You know, if we could say, well, actually, for the next three years, the next five years, oh, like a fixed rate mortgage. Yeah, there's a, a, a stable rent. We also need to disincentivize. Is what that word Disincentivize. is? Oh, well done. Um, <laughs> landlords are encouraged at the moment to actually kick people out in order to get a new lot in and charge a bit more. I mean, talking to um, shelter and the biggest cause of homelessness at the moment is the end of a, a tenancy in the private sector. And we talk about homelessness and in terms of, oh, that's all those blokes you see sleeping rough. Rough sleeping is a incredibly severe problem we know how to solve it but that's a different issue there are much more there are yeah. many more women yeah. doing it now as well but you're talking more about hidden homelessness yeah. aren't you? the the most dangerous place for a woman to be is on the street so women will do anything other than sleep rough and and some of those things are are pretty you know unpleasant and risky in their own right the number of women in temporary accommodation the number of children in temporary accommodation that whole hidden homeless and a lot of that has been fueled by what's happening in the the private rented sector Mm. but if you built more social housing you get people out of the private rented sector into a stable place to live and then that would release property within that's by to let mm. that will house people like you who want are in a position to be able to think about think about buying and london is i mean london's crazy london cambridge oxford but we that's that's spreading up i'm it's 30 years i think this year since i met my husband he'd just bought a flat um he was a single academic and he paid 20 grand for it on um, on labrador grove Labrador grove west oh. 11 yeah. good lord we were obviously not meant to be rich because we flogged that in about 1990 <laughs> <laughs> didn't make but, any but money I think out of it. The problem is that we've we've ended up in a situation where housing has become a business, yeah. and that seems like it's no yeah. a house is no longer a home. It is a property. It is part of a portfolio. I mean, personally, I think that there should be a cap on the amount of houses that anyone should own, but that opinion isn't necessarily popular. 
what you said about hidden homeless and women is interesting because that brings me back to what you said was going to be your main focus during your presidency, which was domestic violence. Yeah, and it's um, about a scary long time ago, 30-odd years since I first was involved in a women's refuge, which was in Basildon and then then in, in Colchester, where we live now. And I was 22... And it didn't occur to the 22-year-old me that we'd still be having these conversations 30-odd years later. I've always believed that we'd... I think for many years we did in the middle of the 20th century. We believed that we were on this upward trajectory in all sorts of areas, and that was certainly one. That actually... And we, we celebrated for many years every time there was a rise in reporting of domestic abuse. We got We said, this is brilliant. This means that women are finally talking about it. But actually, I think we've got to face the fact that you know, this is not just an increase in reporting. This is a massive epidemic, and it's it's really prevalent among young people. And our members build, manage, and maintain homes. And to me, that's there's very little point doing that unless you're safe in it in them. Yeah. Um, and we've still got this intractable seven women a month dying at the hands of a partner or former partner. I've got a couple of questions relating to this, and. The first one is, obviously, there are cuts going on all over the place to women's refuges, and women just don't have anywhere to go. And I don't think people realise that they are genuinely a lifeline yeah. for women. There were there was a census you probably read about. I think every year, Women's Aid do a census, and I think just in England in December, there were something like 100 women, around 100 women, 100 children, turned away from refuge on any one day. They're the women who actually put themselves forward, who are denied a refuge space. What we're also seeing is women who should be going to refuge who aren't, because that may well mean them giving up a social tenancy, which is secure, yeah. and then once they start, yeah. they're in a position to be rehoused, they'd be rehoused into the private rented sector with absolutely no security at all. So women are making decisions that are... You know, both logical and illogical, depending on which lens you you look through it. It's the infuriating, multifaceted answer yeah. to the question, which is ridiculous. Why, Why doesn't she just leave? Yeah, yeah. It's you know, kids, pets, a yeah. safe, a safe and in inverted commas place, as in a roof over your head that you might not get again. And for a lot of women, as you'll know, the most dangerous thing that she can do is leave. So actually, when you have, you know, pressure put on women to remove children from a violent household, which you can, you know, you can understand those conversations taking place, what a lot of women are doing are actually keeping their children safer. But we don't like complexity. We like goodies and baddies. We like, oh, we don't like nuance. We like to think of anyone who's in inverted commas, I'm doing those bunny ears again, um, <laughs> a victim to be um, perfect and chased and you know all those other things that women are meant to and we're none of us are like that yeah but we think there's stuff that housing can do so one of the biggest indicators of um, financial abuse is rent arrears so I want to start some conversations with our members who do you know who collect the rent saying actually at this point you need to start talking having a different conversation it's not just about if you don't pay your rent we'll see you in court Mm -hmm. that ties into another question I wanted to ask which is the impact of universal credit yeah, good face. Eyes <laughs> to heaven. And I roll so far back into Alison's head there. Are you already seeing an impact? Um, yeah, universal credit, the delays, but the benefit cap as well, which came in at twenty six and 23,000 and has been reduced, that heavily impacts on women. And the child tax yeah. credits as well. Yeah. yeah, 
Um, child, child benefit, sorry. Yeah. And then if you put that in with, you know, closure of show start centres, cuts in the health service around things like health visiting, all that stuff together, and you just have got this, I think the word you used earlier was clusterfuck, wasn't it? Mm. I don't know if I'm allowed to use that. You can yeah. use it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it seems quite a good word to, <laughs> to explain the situation that lot, lots and lots of women are in. So if we can keep women safe in their homes. So we have... You know, every everybody living in a in a socially rented home that's got a gas supply has to have someone coming to their home every year to, to see to the boiler. So actually, that's somebody going in. What do they need to be looking out for? Um, the place that women will tend to go to when they are at risk is the bathroom because the bathroom's the only room in the house with a lock on it. So if our carpenters are going in there replacing bathroom doors it's just about thinking about how you frame something yeah. mm. and can we look at it with a different lens and actually think about what support it's about how we deal with antisocial behavior and antisocial behavior focuses on the perpetrator and a lot of domestic abuse is reported as antisocial behavior because it's noise mm. yeah so the first time a landlord often will hear that there's a problem will be because neighbours have complained that they're shouting and screaming and but we think we need to have, all landlords need to have domestic abuse policies that focuses on the victim how easy is that to implement it's not rocket science in terms of acceptability <laughs> to people though i imagine that's going to be quite a hard one you know i i can imagine a landlord being sort of feeling like Nah, I'm not getting involved in that. That's not my business. Do you know what I mean? Well, for a long like, time, the police wouldn't even get well, involved. Well, exactly, in it. yeah. And also, you you know, you potentially putting yourself at risk if you are involving yourself in it. If there's you know a, a nasty person who's violent and and whatever, and I can imagine that would be something that would probably. But I guess if people knew that there were these stops and checks and more eyes on them, yeah, sure, it's a deterrent as much as a. a kind of cure I suppose and I think it's, yeah and it's about linking so our members up with the specialist women's services um, you know so refugees and domestic abuse advisors who really know the territory and know what to do it's about how can we facilitate the right people talking to the yeah. right people and there's a really amazing group of women who set up something called the domestic abuse housing alliance you ought to have them in because they're fab um just because they wanted to make a bit of a difference and one of the things i've learned from them it's so self-evident is it's really hard to tell someone if something's happening to you and i think we've all had it you know nobody wants to go around going hey look at me i'm a victim to actually make that disclosure is really really hard and sometimes what we do when we receive that disclosure is to say, well, it's all right, love, you just need to go and tell all these other people as well. So actually, what can we do to facilitate yeah. getting those conversations started? You know, we're not the experts, but we know who the experts are. And we need to build more social housing because... Yeah. There needs to be somewhere for these people to yeah. go, yeah. The story that we were talking about that ended up with someone saying, you should talk to Alison Inman, was about the number of council houses, former council houses and, and social housing that was now in the hands yep. of private renters and it was literally in a generation I mean my house when I was going to sell it, my flat when I was going to sell it, I'm in a former council yep. house, I bought from a person who bought, yep. the exercised the right to buy, when I put it on the market every single person that came to look at it was someone who wanted to rent it out yep. and you're like that's within two owners that switched into Yep. into the private market but in some cities 
the figure was absolutely mm. staggering. I think Milton Keynes at something like 79%. Absolutely crazy. A city that's full of building that's happening, building happening absolutely everywhere in Milton Keynes. When I, I'm from Newport Pagnell, which is near Milton Keynes. I drove through Milton Keynes. This whole estate's gone up since the last time I drove through Milton Keynes, and yet there's still a chronic shortage of social mm. housing. It seems entirely backwards to me. I don't understand. And also loads of houses just empty. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And if you wander through the West End and, you know, into you know places like Belgravia and, you know, Mayfair and all the rest of it, not that... I don't think I'm no, allowed in there. No. Um, you haven't talked your mouth with an accent. Um, <laughs> but... I once was talking to someone who works for the, whoever it would be, Duke of Westminster, I think, who owns all that stuff. And they used to have an awful lot of high-end retail. And they were saying about how that problematic that is now because nobody lives there. So all those, you know, fantastically um, expensive new builds, if you wander past, what is it, One Hyde Park, you know, the, yeah. the big one, um, there are no lights on. Because nobody, nobody nobody's, lives there. Nobody's home. And at the very least, we need to learn how to tax. You know, we, we need to tax oh, people. Oh, with this. And Cambridge, there was a statistic recently, I don't know if it's still correct, but certainly about two years ago they came out with a statistic, 30% of new build houses in Cambridge were empty. Oh, and even reading. if you just tax it and then throw that money into social yep. housing... Yeah. It's Hammer those people with council tax. Yeah, tests. poor old ASAP Rocky. I was reading about him this morning. He's bought a house in Mayfair, apparently. So you know who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm too old. That. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it is. It's all about it, it's economics. Even though I'm still not an economist, it's supply and demand. Yeah. And I think one of the frustrations with um, the money that's gone into help to buy, yeah, has been that it pushes prices up. Yeah. But it's not done anything particularly to. To increase it's great for supply. me, but I mean, it would be great for me if I could buy a house that was affordable, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and well, not just twenty five percent of it. If you live somewhere yeah. where the, the market's big, eventually you get to a point that your house is worth what it's worth, but nobody can afford to buy yeah. it from you, yeah, because especially if you've been a first time buyer and you've gone in on the sort of property mm. that you have, and you want to you want to upgrade to something big you just can't afford to move I, I need a builder at the minute I can't find one because everybody in Cambridge is building an extension or a, or going into the loft because nobody can afford to buy a bigger house because you just and yet because investors from abroad are prepared to come in and buy those houses the price isn't dropping which is what would normally happen in a supply and demand situation but it's as it? well it's a generation of people who are using buy to let market as a pension yeah because Pen- the pension system doesn't work anymore and you know putting your money in the bank doesn't get you any return so people put it in the property market you know if you look at a lot of the developments in london are sold off plan in the far east they're never even marketed mm, in this yeah. in this country and they are the, they are banks they are not homes well, going back to um Vauxhall, where the uh, where trump's dodgy embassy is if you see it now it's barely barely recognisable to what it was 10 years ago because they're building the embassy there so they've but there's just blocks and blocks and blocks of these like incredible swanky looking flats and I was looking the other day because it's just like the one bedroom flat the tiny one bedroom flat I'm trying to buy is is the full market value of it is ridiculous and I thought oh I wonder what it's like in somewhere nicer than Dalston let's have a little mm. look wowie <laughs> it's a lot of money in Vauxhall yeah. it's like a million quid yeah, basically. King's Cross as well is another one that's just been regenerated out of mm. a, like recognition to what it used to be when I used to work near there. It's just 
bonkers. I've got to say that I live in Halifax and we do not have, in Yorkshire, do not have as many of these problems. You can still buy a house for £14,000. <laughs> if anything, my house has gone down in value. Uh, so. I don't know why I laughed at that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Hannah. <laughs> Thanks for your support. I was though. just really happy that someone could afford to buy a house somewhere. No, exactly. You all have to move to West Yorkshire. That's, yeah. what, that's what needs but to happen. But there's a thing there as well about policy in that we always end up with, we feel like in England at least, we have housing policies that are set to address problems in London and the South East. And policymakers forget that there's the rest of the country. Uh, maybe but devolution will help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> so this all sounds quite depressing. Is is there a positive? Is there is there something that people can do? Obviously, because we can't affect government policy, or can we? I don't know. Well, we can is, vote. We can. Is there is there is there a way that 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 someone listening to this now could do something? Or at least a spare room, you know. (laughs) Well, something that ensures that that a woman who doesn't want to stay with her husband doesn't have to stay with her husband. I think we have a really peculiar relationship with building in this country. Such a tiny, tiny proportion of England is built upon. Um, It's absolutely minuscule. And uh, yet, not according to the Daily Mail, <laughs> coming over here, taking our green belts. Yeah, fine. So Edge when rose. you're talking about Cambridge, you cannot yeah. talk about the Cambridge housing market without having a grown-up conversation about the green belt. Because yeah. if you say green belt, okay, if I say green belt to you, what do you see? Pretty fields and trees and yeah. and sheep. I live in and London. I don't frolicking. see anything. <laughs> There's loads of green spaces in London. But green belt isn't all like that. Some of the green belt is really shit. You know, it was, <laughs> it's, it's horrible. Um, but the it's equivalent just, of like stage three in karate. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, we need we need to talk about that. Yeah. Because if we can't, you know, expand, then then I don't know what's going to happen to happen to Cambridge. I think well, John... the, pro- the problem with Cambridge is they keep building too many places in the city and the infrastructure can't cope with it. It's just it's it's a medieval city basically. Take you like an hour to get into town, yeah, can't it? That's that's builds a housing estate that all funnels out of one road, which is preposterous. Two hundred and fifty houses. Try driving past that at nine o'clock in the morning. Everybody's leaving for work. I think the other thing is, can I quote John Prescott? Which, yeah, why not? why not? So when I remember once hearing him talk about climate change and about trying to encourage people to use public transport. And he said the problem is everyone who's sitting in that traffic jam thinks that the bugger in the car in front should have got the sodding bus to work. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're like that as a about new... But everyone thinks, you know, it's easy to get a consensus about, yes, we need to build more. But not near me. NIMBYs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. NIMBYs. And that absolutely. is the biggest, you know, one of the biggest things because it, you know, politicians need to be able to make decisions. They also don't want to piss off their constituents, though. Right. But if their constituents began to think a little bit about, you know, it's not just it's, where will my children live, where will my grandchildren live, and we're running out of places. At the moment, you've got the trickle down thing happening. So. You know, there's a generation of people who are releasing equity, the bank of mum and dad, helping people get on the property ladder in some places. Cheers, that's, Dad. <laughs> that's not going to last very much longer. No. That money's going to be used up. So we're just putting off. Oh, this is what I was saying yeah, about the, uh, like the Enclosures a... Act in the in the 1800s. Eventually, we're all going to end up with like a, 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 a handkerchief-sized piece of land that we have to live on because there's just we're just dividing everything up mm. too much. There isn't yeah. enough to trickle down, like you say. And we've got the land, we've got the, you know, it makes sense to, it saves money to build housing, yeah. you know, it saves money in the long run, it's, if you haven't got somewhere decent to live, then you're not going to reach your potential, um, you know, health impacts, education impacts, all the rest of it. 
Yeah, because I guess it's not just about building social housing or building any kind of housing. Within that housing, you need to build community. Yeah. So you've got to put space aside for hospitals, doctors, surgeries, shops. Schools. School. Yeah. Oh, yeah, schools. <laughs> Education's important. Pubs. And pubs, yeah. yeah, anything that keeps the community hub. And pubs and churches, I suppose, if people are into that kind of thing. And where, to, and where people are working and how they're working, because yeah. that's all going to change. I mean, you know, we can't be commuting forever. One would, you know, more and more agile working people working from home, all the rest of it. Thank you so much for coming in. That you have been fascinating. It's yeah. really, really fascinating yeah. subjects. And yeah, guys, think a bit. Let's not be nimbies. Mm. Let's not be. Let's be yimbies and not nimbies. Yes, yeah. in yes. my backyard. <laughs> I use that on my Tinder profile. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Standard Issue for All Women.